Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I will now let you introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Current Perspectives in the Treatment of Metastatic Gastric Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, both from urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have um, some international participants as well from um, Brunei, Canada, India, Portugal, Romania, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well. So this is really uh, kind of amazing, actually. Um, and um, today's program is supported by a grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Koo. Dr. Jeffrey Koo is medical oncologist, head of the esophagastric section, gastrointestinal oncology service from Royal Stone Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Koo is going to be addressing overview of metastatic gastric cancer, including diagnosis, the role of diagnostic testing and precision medicine, and standard of care and new treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koo. Carolyn, thank you very much. Um, and, and yeah, esophageal gastric is a little bit of a mouthful. Um, you know, so I've done this for about three or four years now, and it's always really a pleasure for me to participate in this. And certainly I hope that people on the call um, you know, will derive benefit and hopefully will leave you know, empowered with, with more information about this diagnosis. So uh, I've been charged today with talking about metastatic um, gastric cancer. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about gastric cancer first. Um, in the U.S., at least, stomach cancer is relatively uncommon. We see about 25,000 patients annually throughout the U.S. But around the world, uh, cancers of the stomach and esophagus are actually extremely common. Uh, in particular, these are cancers that are common in parts of um, East Asia, definitely Japan, Korea, and China, as well as parts of the developing world. Um, so in the U.S., uh, we don't screen for stomach cancer because it's uncommon. So uh, patients are diagnosed when they present with symptoms. Uh, the symptoms can be relatively nonspecific, meaning that it really um, it could be easily confused for anything else, including maybe an ulcer, uh, including uh, gastritis, a, you know, inflammation of the stomach, or maybe even some kind of intestinal bug. So certainly it's not uncommon in the U.S. for these symptoms to go on for a couple of months uh, before, before the diagnosis is established. Um, at the time of diagnosis in the U.S., approximately half of patients have metastatic disease, and, and what I mean by that is that the cancer has, has spread away from the stomach itself so that surgery is not a good option to treat it. Um, the, the way that we stage or diagnose stomach cancer is primarily with an endoscopy, uh, which involves pu putting a, a, um, a uh, tube with a camera into the esophagus um, and stomach to look around and to take biopsies. Uh, beyond that, we would also, at a minimum, obtain a CAT scan 
um, which is essentially a series of computer-generated x-rays. There may sometimes be also a role for using a, a PET scan, uh, which injects a mildly radioactive dye that can light up where the tumor cells are. Uh, so sometimes, if it doesn't seem like the cancer cells have spread, uh, we actually also would consider what's called a diagnostic laparoscopy, where a surgeon makes tiny incisions uh, in the abdominal wall and then places a camera in there to look around. And the reason why that's important is that about 10 or 15% of the time, even when CAT scans, PET scans show no clear spread of the cancer, it's only on laparoscopy that we see tiny spots in the lining of the abdomen or when we do washings where you put um, saline or salt water into the abdomen and flush it out that we, that we see that there are cancer cells there. Uh, certainly seeing tiny spots in the lining of the abdomen uh, or having the washing come back with cancer cells would be consistent with metastatic stomach cancer. So um, moving on from, from staging a diagnosis, I'll talk about uh, what are some standard tests that we use uh, to, to try to guide our treatments. So probably at this time, there are three standard tests that we would use in addition to, conf to conform uh, confirming that this is indeed a diagnosis of stomach cancer. So the first and probably the most established is testing for protein on the cancer cells called HER2, say HER number two. And this is present in about 20 to 25% of stomach cancer cells. Uh, and it's hugely important because when this protein is present, um, it acts essentially as a driving force uh, for the cancer cells. And there is a standard treatment that we can add to chemotherapy uh, that helps to block the protein and significantly improves outcomes. So it certainly would be important to identify any patient uh, that has a HER2 positive stomach cancer since the treatment options are different um, slash better. Uh, the other um, two tests that we would do in a standard way um, is to, the second is to look for a protein called PDL1. Um, and PDL1 is present in about 60% of stomach cancer cells, and its presence really indicates to us uh, that a patient is more likely to benefit from immunotherapy. In fact, in the U.S., immunotherapy is approved on the basis of a cancer cell having a having this PDL1 protein. So that clearly also has strong treatment implications. Uh, the last test that would be considered standard is also to test for, uh, for proteins on the cancer cells. Uh, there are actually four proteins, and they are called mismatch repair proteins. Um, essentially, this test allows us to identify a very uncommon subset of stomach cancer, uh, what we call microsatellite unstable or um, mismatch repair protein deficient uh, stomach cancer. This actually comprises only 3 to 4% of stomach cancers, uh, but, uh, but these tumors have kind of an outsized benefit and outsized response to immunotherapy. So, so it is also equally critical to identify these patients because they should certainly be offered immunotherapy uh, relatively soon in, in terms of the kind of treatment sequence. So the last potential test um, is something that's called next generation sequencing. And the idea here is that we would test the cancer cells uh, and we would test anywhere from four to 500 genes within the cancer cells to try to identify genes that are abnormal or mutated. Uh, and, and sometimes when, when you identify an abnormal gene, that essentially is also kind of a, a driving force um, for the cancer cell and helps the cancer cell to grow. And occasionally we have experimental treatments uh, that can target and block that. 
Um, the reality is that the idea of next generation sequencing to kind of identify a personalized approach for each and every single patient, um, that really has not come to fruition in, in stomach cancer and in comparison to other cancers. But nevertheless, it would be considered um, a standard of care test. Uh, it is a test that, uh, for the most part, is reimbursed by insurance. So in addition to testing for HER2, PDL1 and mismatch repair proteins, um, certainly here at Memorial, we would also consider next generation sequencing. Uh, and, and, and in totality, these would essentially comprise kind of state-of-the-art testing uh, in 2019, in addition to just confirming the diagnosis of the cancer itself. So, so the last thing I'll talk about is, is treatment, and, and I briefly alluded to the fact that when the cancer cells have spread away from the stomach itself, uh, surgery is, is, is not a, a considered a, a good option. Um, another way that we treat cancer is with radiation, and generally there's not a huge role for radiation in the setting either. So really the main treatment uh, is chemotherapy or newer treatments. So these are treatments that are that are mostly intravenous. They go throughout the bloodstream. Uh, the goal of these treatments is to shrink the tumor cells on a CAT scan. It's to reduce symptoms related to the cancer, uh, and it's certainly to, to help patients live much longer uh, than, than if they chose to receive no treatment at all. So uh, in, in the first-line setting, so what I, in, in terms of the first treatment that we would choose, uh, it typically is some variation of a two-drug chemotherapy combination. Uh, mostly in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, we would use a, a combination called Folfox, F-O-L-F-O-X. Uh, this is a combination that's not only used for stomach cancer, it's also used for colon cancer. Uh, it's used for multiple cancers throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, it is generally a well-tolerated combination, and it certainly has a, a strong potential to shrink the tumor and, and reduce symptoms uh, that the cancer may be causing. So um, at this point in time, the only additional treatment that we would add to the full Fox chemotherapy uh, is, um, is if the cancer cells are HER2 positive. And as I mentioned, about 20-25% of stomach cancer cells are positive uh, for HER2. So that's the case. A standard medication that we would add uh, is, a, is a drug called trastuzumab or Herceptin. Uh, this is what we call an antibody. So essentially, it's a protein that binds to and blocks the HER2 protein on the cancer cells. Uh, it has very few side effects, and it makes the chemotherapy work better in every respect. So, so certainly, if the cancer cells were HER2 positive, uh, we would add this drug, trastuzumab, to the, uh, to the chemotherapy um, itself. Um, in addition, there are a couple of other newer drugs that are also approved. Uh, there is also a blood vessel blocking medication uh, that's been a standard medication for a little bit more than five years now. The idea behind blood vessel blocking medications is that they block the blood supply to the cancer cells. They essentially starve the cancer cells of oxygen and nutrients. So this particular medication is called bremisuramab. It works on its own and it works also when it's added to chemotherapy. So the combination of remisuramab with a chemotherapy drug called paclitaxel uh, is what we call our, our standard second-line combination, meaning that if the first-line treatment with, with, for example, Folfox, um, if, if that stops working at any point, then the standard option would be to switch to uh, remisuramab with, uh, with paclitaxel. Uh, the last thing I would mention is is, uh, is immunotherapy, and, and clearly there's been a lot of interest both on the part of patients but also on the part of physicians. 
So the idea behind immunotherapy is that it works in a completely different way than chemotherapy. Uh, immunotherapy essentially stimulates the immune system. It kind of activates and wakes up the immune system so that the immune system is able to recognize and, and, and attack the cancer cells on its own. And the idea really is very much for the immune system, just as it's able to get rid of, let's say, the flu virus, uh, that it's able to also recognize and attack cancer cells. So, you know, immunotherapy medications have been have been studied for about 15 years now, and there are now several drugs that are approved in many different cancers, uh, and, and thankfully um, one of them is stomach cancer. So there's a drug that's called pembrolizumab, that's approved in what we call the third-line setting. In other words, if the first two chemotherapy options don't work, then pembrolizumab is approved. Uh, but as I mentioned in the beginning, it is approved only for the 60% of stomach cancer cells that have this protein called PD-L1. Uh, essentially, when PDL1 is present, we think that cancer cells are much more likely to respond to immunotherapy. And when PDL1 is not present, uh, then the cancer cells are much less likely to respond to immunotherapy. So, you know, immunotherapy is also being, you know, investigated right now in, in multiple clinical studies, and we're looking at moving it further uh, from third-line treatment to second-line treatment to first-line treatment. We're looking at combining it with radiation. Uh, we're looking at uh, giving it with surgery for patients uh, who are diagnosed uh, when the cancer cells have not spread. So, so one thing I would quickly mention is that studies have shown um, no clear role for giving immunotherapy as a second-line option. And uh, very recently, there was actually a large study that looked at giving immunotherapy as the first-line option. And the, the results of the study suggested that for some patients, uh, immunotherapy actually was comparable to chemotherapy as the first option, um, but one has to be very, very careful with those results. Um, immunotherapy, I, I would maintain, is, is, is uh, not a good option uh, for most patients at the beginning of the diagnosis, especially if they have symptoms related to the cancer, uh, especially if the tumors are relatively big. Uh, I think there certainly is a role for immunotherapy later on, but for most patients, uh, the first treatment for metastatic stomach cancer still is some combination of, of, of chemotherapy. Um, so let me uh, stop at that at, at this point. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Ku. That was incredibly informative and really set a beautiful stage for this entire program, really outlining really the treatments for um, metastatic gastric cancer. And thank you very much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Mohamed Bassam Sanbal. And Dr. Sanbal is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and Dr. Bassam Sanbal will be addressing clinical trials as a treatment option, controlling symptoms, treatment side effects, and pain, and communicating with your healthcare team about supportive care and quality of life concerns, and palliative care as well. And I, it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bassam Sanbal. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and thank you, everyone, uh, for being here. Um, so, as you heard from Dr. Ku, the, the standard of care for the treatment of advanced or metastatic uh, stomach cancer is really with what we call systemic therapy, so uh, medications that go all over the body, and that's usually with combination of the chemotherapy that you heard about from Dr. Ku, um, or in some patients what we call uh, targeted therapies for patients who have the HER2 protein or HER2 mutation, uh, where we use the Herceptin, 
and in some patients we use the blood vessel uh, uh, blocking agent, which is the ramucirumab that you heard about. And also you heard that in some patients it is appropriate to use immunotherapy, which is also something that has been, uh, it, it is a, it's a, a new addition to the uh, combination of therapies that utilize uh, definitely in the last few years. Now, the ultimate goal behind developing any new drug is really with achieving cure ultimately for this cancer, for the can for this cancer and other cancers as well in general. Everything that has been discussed today with all the medications have been really achieved as part of the clinical trials, and we hear always about clinical trials and what that means. And I'm going to just um, kind of tell you a little bit of overview about clinical trials in general and how we think about them. And of course, research comes in initially from the lab asking questions that have scientific background and initially testing those compounds or drugs on animals. And then when we see there is a promise in a drug, then uh, we take that uh, drug to what we call a phase one study. So you always hear, oh, phase one study, what is that? The goal of the phase one study is really to assess whether this new drug is safe in human. And by safe, I mean what are the side effects and what is the good dose that we can utilize. In addition to that, we also look at a signal of efficacy. And by that, I mean the effectiveness of the drug and whether this drug is causing some shrinkage of the cancer or not. Now, definitely with the phase one, the main goal is really to assess the safety, as I said, really looking at the adverse events, side effects, and all of these things and how to address them. Now then, if we say that this drug is, is safe and, uh, and we know what the dose that we're going to use, then we take it to the, what we call the phase two, which is really giving this drug to patients, like in this case, patients with, with gastric cancer, uh, kind of a larger group of patients. And we're here expanding on the phase one and assessing more the effectiveness of the drug, again, to see if the cancer is shrinking or not shrinking and uh, what percentage and all of that. Um, and then if, the, if, the, if there is a promise from this drug, we take it to what we call a phase three trial. Now, phase three trial is, is very important. Phase three compares the new drug with the standard of care. So in most circumstances, having two group of patients, now one group of the patients get the standard of care and the other group of patients get the new drug. And then we look on whether patients who get the new drug have more cancer shrinkage and whether the drug is really having favorable um, results in these patients versus the, what we know about, which is the standard of care. If the new drug then, if you will, like beats the, the, the standard of care, then the new drug is really the standard of care. And this is how we think. And this is most of the, the, the drugs that came into market and that you heard about um, and that we were utilizing for patients in the clinic, they came in after phase three trials. And that's how the FDA approved them. So each one of the drugs discussed today, as you heard, came through all of this process. And all of this is really because of the altruism of the patients who participated in the clinical trials and studies. Although the, we hope that every clinical trial we start end up being positive, however, many of the clinical trials end up being negative, which means either the drug is not effective or has too many side effects. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. We learn from the information sometimes even more when uh, we, we learn about the biology of the tumor. We learn how to develop uh, better drugs from, uh, from that 
and we learn even how to tackle the disease differently from a different uh, angle. So we really learn from the positives and the negative. So uh, really, research is is definitely a key, and it is important, and it is what led us to 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 progress and leads to more progress, and hopefully. Uh, the, the the ultimate goal, as I mentioned, is really curing this disease, even when it is metastatic. Now, of course, part of taking care of of, of patients in general with gastric cancer um, is is one of the key elements is really controlling the disease and controlling the symptoms, um, and making sure that the patient is able to tolerate treatments with controlling the symptoms that can arise from the disease. And there are also so so symptoms and and problems can arise from the disease itself or side effects of the uh, uh, from the therapy itself that we utilize. So a lot of times when when you first meet your oncologist, you hear uh, the doctor saying initial visit, you'll probably feel better after starting chemotherapy. And that, uh, you, that although sounds strange in the beginning, it's actually true, true for many patients because many of the symptoms that the patient is having is really uh, driven by, by the tumor itself. For example, because of the location of the gastric tumor as port of entry to the digestive tract, um, obstruction can happen. And that depending on the site of the tumor, for example, in the stomach, this can lead to a problem with passing food and leading to nausea and vomiting and weight loss in some uh, some situations as well. Now, thank, thankfully, we have multiple options like stent uh, uh, to be placed by our colleagues in gastroenterology uh, or feeding tube uh, sometimes uh, is needed to deliver nutrient uh, to relieve the obstruction at that time. So a feeding tube is not really necessarily for every patient. However, it's for selected patients where we're having a problem with passing food and problem with nutrition, then we can utilize a feeding tube. Um, also, also, nausea medication is one of the, 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 the advancements that we had. So we have advancement with the systemic therapy in general, with chemotherapy and immunotherapy, but also the, the medications that we use for nausea and vomiting right now in 2019 are much better than the ones we used, uh, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, whether with pills or intravenous medications. Now, bleeding can also happen because of the tumor. Um, and if that happens, uh, also we, we call our colleagues in gastroenterology uh, to help us with controlling the bleeding. Sometimes they burn the tumor, and very rarely we do surgery. Now, um, the other thing that you're going to hear about, which is very important, is nutrition. And it is really a key element uh, in, in, in this process, and it is vital to maximize the nutrition and uh, to continue building strength and, and muscle, and you'll hear more than that, uh, more than, uh, that uh, about this. Um, pain is another problem uh, that sometimes can happen, and we really work very closely with our colleagues in palliative care. Uh, we call them, I, I like to call them the supportive care doctors. They're a really great um, team of doctors and nurses that help us with and support us while given the chemotherapy and immunotherapy to really control nausea, pain, and other symptoms that the patients might have. So a lot of these symptoms um, arise really as a result of the cancer itself, um, and uh, as, as you heard from me, and uh, treating the cancer can alleviate most of the symptoms that we talked about. However, um, also chemotherapy and immunotherapy um, on their part, have also uh, own side effects, their own side effects and, and with nausea, uh, diarrhea sometimes, neuropathy, 
the neuropathy can really vary from uh, tingling sensation in the fingers and toes uh, to um, sometimes uh, forms that affect the uh, daily function. Uh, so we really, you will hear your doctors and nurses always asking you, do you have any tingling sensation? Do you have any problem with that? And th this this communication is very important because based on that, your doctor can really uh, either change the dose of the drug or stop the drug sometimes or prescribe other medications that really help to control this neuropathy or any other side effects. So as as you can see, all of these elements really require a very good communication between you and your health team to achieve the best results possible. Um, as the care now requires, as, as you can see, a multidisciplinary care team with different specialties. So the, the communication, again, I, I emphasize is very, very important between the team on one end uh, with each other and also between the patient and providers on the other end as well. And, and I always tell the patients that remember that if your doctor or your team uh, do not really hear from you or get a, any message from you. They assume that everything is going well and you're not having any symptoms. Therefore, it is important that if you have any issues or concern, to really let the team members know what's going on and to, to really act on it and advise you. So as I mentioned, your oncologist might consult with other team members to further support you, at, uh, like for example, with palliative care for pain medicine, social worker and nutritionist, um, all of these consults and communications are really triggered by the, the communication between you and your health uh, team members regarding the symptoms or, or any con concerns that you're having. And with that, I conclude my part of the presentation, and I thank you very much for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sunball. That was really outstanding and wonderful and just really informative to people. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, and it's such an important part of the whole treatment both the clinical trials as well as just managing all the side effects and discomfort and pain and being able to talk to one's whole healthcare team. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian. She is with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, a really important area, um, as we were talking about this call before we, it started, um, for people um, with um, gastric cancer. So I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Uh, Ms. Um, Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm, I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of metastatic gastric cancer. Um, so nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only during your treatment, but in general for your quality of life. We all have to eat and drink in order for our body to work the way we want it to work and the way we need it to work. Um, if you're struggling or undergoing treatment and having some challenges, um, talk with your healthcare team. Oftentimes modifying your diet during times where things are more challenging um, is, is something that needs to be done. And oftentimes it's a short-term solution um, or a short-term um, period that you'll have to have these types of modifications and sometimes they last a little bit longer. But the goal is for you to get the nutrients and fluid in that you need so you can maintain um, continuing your treatment. Some potential side effects um, that you may experience while undergoing treatment are things like dry mouth, um, maybe difficulty swallowing, changes in your taste, maybe a decrease in appetite and increase in fatigue. 
And the role of the dietitian um, is really to help you get in what you need um, nutritionally. And so a dietitian can work with you on identifying your unique calorie and protein fluid needs, um, talk about modifications based on the side effects that you're experiencing, um, and even talk with you about potential oral nutrition supplements. Sometimes that's something that we um, bring to the patient if, if that need is there. Um, and even focusing on foods to include more of and those to have less often. Um, sometimes we forget that food has a function and there are side effects with some foods. So if you're going under some challenges, then we may want to pull some foods away and bring some other foods in during that time. Um, please review all supplements, herbs, products that you're looking to take. Even if it's over-the-counter, it doesn't mean that it's the best product for you to take. And um, talk with your healthcare team. Sometimes it seems really benign. Oh, it's just a tea. My friend drinks this every day and she's fine. But remember that we're all individual and you're going under um, some treatments that they aren't going under. And so we need to make sure that those products are safe for you. So please review them with your team. Um, the goal is for the patient to eat as much of a whole food diet as possible. I get questions often regarding should I be juicing, do I need to buy organic, um, looking at special products out in the grocery store, if they should be purchasing some special products. And the answer is just eat food. Um, as close to harvest as you can get it is most optimal. It's going to have the most vitamins, minerals, fiber, um, anti-inflammatory components, um, just a number of essential components that our body needs, and it's best absorbed from food. So that's why I'm saying there may be times when your side effects are challenging for you to get in what you need. Talk with your dietitian. They can work with you on modifying and still having those things that you enjoy. Now, there are times where patients really just can't get in enough by mouth, and that's part of the disease process. And like we heard, oftentimes when patients start treatment, those side effects that they've been struggling with can oftentimes recede, and they can start um, feeling an improvement. So um, until that time comes, there may be a discussion about a feeding tube. We heard that just a minute ago, and it's nothing to be afraid of. Um, a lot of times that's very concerning for patients with the thought of having this additional apparatus, but um, you know, you can see the materials before you ever have them placed, walk through with your healthcare provider. There are videos, lots of things to help ease those anxieties. And um, again, a lot of times it's short term. So the goal is for you to be able to get through your treatment, beat this disease, stay strong, and so that's what we need to be focused on. Now, um, Medications, side effects, like the doctor mentioned, if we don't hear from you, we think everything's okay. Talk with your healthcare team. They can help manage a lot of these side effects. That's a big deal for patients. They think it's normal. They think, oh, I, there's nothing they can do for me. Oftentimes there is. You just need to keep that line of communication open. Hydration, hydration, hydration. Dehydration can cause a multitude of its 
a multitude of symptoms and side effects that can be very concerning. They can increase risk for nausea, falls, fatigue, you feel dizzy, um, electrolyte imbalances. Most patients need about 80 ounces of fluid a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, Talk with your team about what your needs are. Um, but in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you, and please access them, and the sooner the better. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Beard. That was really excellent. And again, thank you for really highlighting all the needs that people have in terms of nutrition and all the things that they can do to, to really to access appropriate nutrition and hydration. Thank you. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions. So please start to prepare your questions, start thinking about your questions, so we can be sure to address as many of your questions as possible. Um, cancer Care is a national organization, so we're available to people all over the country, um, and it is staffed primarily by um, oncology social workers. They're trained, master's level trained oncology social workers, and we do a lot of different things, so um, a lot of different services that you can access, and you can choose which ones. You can take all of them or some of them. We offer help with um, the cost of care, so with um, practical and financial assistance, so we have a very um, extensive program on that, actually uh, probably one of the largest in the country. We also offer uh, just counseling on the phone or online. So we have lots of support groups. Many people like being in a support group with people who have a similar diagnosis that they have, also who may be a person living, let's say, with gastric cancer or a person living or a caregiver of someone who um, lives with gastric cancer or a family member or a young adult who is a caregiver to someone who's an, who has gastric cancer. So to some extent, we cover all ages, um, some, so from kids to children to teens to um, young adults, middle-aged adults, and older adults. And older adults, of course, span so many decades when you think about it from age, I guess, 50 to age 100, I suppose. So you could say that they have lots of different ages that we, we um, help people across the spectrum with all different types of cancers as well and all different walks of life. So um, we do have a Cancer Care for Kids program, which is primarily to help children and teens who have cancer in their families. And maybe it's a parent, a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, a teacher, um, someone in their family, um, and they, the family, no one really quite knows how to talk about um, cancer, and so that is very helpful to children and teens, um, and the parents are involved in that as well, or the guardians. Um, so with that being said, that pretty much covers all that we do. We have these programs as well that you're on right now, and we also have publications that we, and fact sheets that are accessible on our website, or you can simply call us. So our phone number is one 800 813-4673, and you'll get that at the end of the program as well, or www.cancercare.org is our website. Um, and you can contact us for information using our website and just uh, say that you need help and we will contact you. Um, so with that being said, we now do have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, uh, Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board, and if you would explain to the audience how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself on the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. 
Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Carolyn Messner. This has also been an excellent seminar. I appreciate it. Thank you. I have a two-part question. I didn't hear anything about genetic testing uh, for gastric cancer. Um, I know about the bar testing that I did have since I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor of HER2 breast cancer. I'm wondering if it's the same since I have another family member that had gastric cancer and my dad had colon cancer of HER2. So I'm wondering if this is similar as in my husband's family who has also had gastric cancer and his grandfather. And I'm just wondering what other testing, if the BARD can show that, and but the HER2, if that could be passed on to different cancers. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Stephanie, for that. Um, the questions, uh, kind remarks. And uh, Dr. Ku, would you like to address this in a general way, of course? And Stephanie will then recommend you go back to your treating healthcare team. But Dr. Ku? Yeah, sure. So, so the um, so there is not a recommendation for uniform testing, and in, 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 in that everyone with stomach cancer, uh, we don't automatically recommend that they get um, genetic testing. So certainly, there are a couple of things that would prompt that. I mean, the first is that we would um, go through the family history. So you know, there are several genetic syndromes that can increase the risk for stomach cancer. Um, uh, there is a syndrome called Lynch syndrome which also goes with colon cancer, uh, potentially um, cancers of the bladder, and then, and then um, cancers of the, um, of the uterus as well. So certainly if, if someone you know, has, has that family history or they have that personal history, uh, it would absolutely trigger you know, a recommendation uh, to meet with a clinical geneticist. Um, I think the specific question was about breast cancer. So there actually is, so there actually is a syndrome that can increase the risk for both breast cancer as well as stomach cancer, uh, and that's the BRCA syndrome or BRCA. Um, I think you know, many people may be aware that it increases the risk for breast cancer as well as ovarian cancer. And I think potentially the most famous person uh, with that right now is you know the actress Angelina Jolie, who actually, in a preventative way, had um, had um, surgery. I mean, she had mastectomies as well as I think uh, surgery to remove the ovaries and uh, to reduce the risk of developing these cancers. Uh, but the BRCA syndrome can actually also slightly increase the risk for developing stomach cancer. Uh, but the bottom line is that we would certainly, you know, take a careful family history, uh, and 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 if the family history warranted, we would make a referral to a clinical geneticist. Uh, there are probably two other specific scenarios where we would refer to uh, clinical genetics. So um, I mentioned early on that an important test we do um, is is to look for proteins called mismatch repair proteins on the cancer cells. Um, as it turns out, if those proteins are missing, uh, that potentially could be because of this Lynch syndrome, uh, which increases the risk for colon cancer, stomach cancer, and, uh, and, and many other cancers. So if we found that someone's cancer cells did not have mismatch repair proteins, um, that would also trigger a, a referral to um, a clinical geneticists. Uh, the last scenario by which we would refer patients is, you know, I had talked in the beginning about, um, uh, you know, the idea of personalized medicine and what we call next-generation sequencing to, to look at the tumor cells. So at Memorial Sloan Kettering, our test, in addition to looking at tumor cells, also looks at normal cells. So if in the process of looking at normal cells, uh, we found a mutation in the normal cells, that would imply that um, that was inherited, uh, that that person got it from a parent. Uh, they could share it with siblings. They could pass it on to children. So that, uh, for us, would also automatically trigger a referral to, to a clinical geneticist. 
Uh, but essentially, the you know the short answer to 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 the question is that we you know unlike other cancers where there's an automatic automatic uh, referral or consideration of of um, genetic testing, that's not something that's a recommendation in stomach cancer just yet. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thanks um, so much. And Dr. Um, Bassam Sandal, do you want to add anything? No, I definitely agree with what Dr. Kuhn mentioned. I mean, it's there's definitely the importance in differentiating some patients when he, when they hear we're going to test the the genes or the, those testing. They it's it's very important to uh, differentiate between testing the genes of the cancers themselves, so the cancer cells themselves, uh, and then uh, versus testing the genes that you inherited from your parents. So the cells that you inherited from your parents. And that's uh, definitely uh, a very important uh, uh, differentiation here. And I think Dr. Ku really covered it all. Awesome. Thank you. Very comprehensive. Excellent. Okay. Um, we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so um, for Dr. Um, Bassam Sanbal, um, I had H. pylori infection a couple of years ago, and my endoscopy came back negative for gastric cancer. How often should I be screened for gastric cancer? Yeah, so H. so the I cannot really comment specifically on your case uh, right now because I'm not familiar with all the details. But just going to answer in general for H. pylori. I mean, H. pylori is one of the infections that are very common, um, and uh, uh, it's it's one of the bacterias that that we find uh, in the community. Actually, if you take normal people just walking the street, sometimes you'll find H. pylori not causing any problems, and then H. pylori sometimes can cause uh, further problems with uh, ulcers and changes in the stomach and uh, gastritis as well, so inflammation of the stomach itself. Um, the recommendation specifically for your case uh, would be really driven by the gastroenterologist, uh, the stomach doctor who saw you, and based on the details of the case, then they can recommend whether they, they want to test it further later on or not. And uh, some, because uh, a lot of times, really, the, the only thing that we need to do when we have H. pylori is really to do a, a course of antibiotics and then you're done with that. So H. pylori is, is associated also with other types of uh, uh, cancers of the stomach, for example. Um, it's associated with... Uh, so that when, when, you, when you hear us saying a stomach cancer, most commonly we're referring to what we call adenocarcinoma, and this is just uh, how the cell look under... Uh, they look like under the microscope. Uh, sometimes it can cause... Uh, uh, the H. pylori can cause what we call uh, maltoma, or re really is a kind of a, a very uh, rare type of uh, gastric cancer, which has a, a, what we call lymphoma of the of the stomach, and that's treated really differently. Uh, there are some patients who have H. pylori associated, so H. pylori that led to the lymphoma, and we treat them just with antibiotics. So it's really there are multiple uh, things and multiple angles here we cannot. To, to, to take a look at, but in general, I would say just uh, really discuss with your gastroenterologist. Excellent. Um, thank you. And um, Dr. Ku, do you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, yeah I, I guess what I would say absolutely is just to amplify that. I mean, I didn't go into it in a lot of detail. 
when I first talked about stomach cancer, but you know, part of the reason why we think it's generally uncommon in the U.S. but common in other parts of the world is really this H. pylori infection. So it's actually a bacterial infection. People get it probably when they're kids. Uh, it's more common in places where food is kept out at room temperature, so more common in the developing world uh, than developed countries, more common in the U.S. 50 years ago than today. And, you know, there probably are, you know, billions of people around the world who have H. pylori, but it does slightly increase the risk for ulcers, uh, it does increase the risk um, for stomach cancer, uh, and as Dr. Bassam pointed out, it does also increase the risk for, for a special kind of lymphoma. So, um, you know, because H. pylori is uncommon in the U.S., uh, there is not a recommendation to, to screen for it or test for it. But when someone is diagnosed with H. pylori, we would absolutely treat it. Uh, the treatment consists of two weeks of um, two antibiotics and an antacid. And then it is important after the treatments are done to confirm that the H. pylori has been eradicated. Uh, and there are a couple of, um, you can either repeat an endoscopy or there are a couple of non-invasive tests um, that you can do to make sure that the H. pylori is gone. Um, as long as the H. pylori is gone and, and the original endoscopy didn't show you know, any, any clear problems, I'm actually not aware that there are any recommendations to repeat endoscopies on a routine basis. And, and that's really because at the end of the day, I mean, H. pylori is extremely common on a, on a global scale, uh, but thankfully stomach cancer is, is, is not common at all. So as long as the H. pylori has been adequately treated um, and as long as the original endoscopy was otherwise pretty normal, uh, there generally is not a recommendation to, to repeat uh, an endoscopy, but, but certainly it would be important to follow up with, with the gastroenterologist who did the endoscopy um, uh, just to make sure that all of those things are taken care of. Thank you. Um, and um, thank you very much. And um, so this is a, a question, I guess, actually for both Dr. Ku and for Dr. Um, Bassam Sanbal. So I'll start with Dr. Ku. I'm having a gastrectomy for my stage 2 gastric cancer. I'm a healthy 50-year-old, and I'd like to return to work after the procedure. Is this possible, and how long is the general recovery time before returning? So I'm going to ask our, our physicians to address your question in a general way, just because they don't have all of the de details or particulars, but just in general um, to put in a context um, in terms of the recuperation from the surgery and return to work in general, um, some guidelines for this person to keep in mind. Um, sure. Should I should I start? Yes. 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 Thank you. The um so so the, so that's a you know so this is a different situation than what we talked about. So uh, the cancer cells had not spread, and 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 um, thankfully, um, um, you know, this person was able to have surgery. So. The recovery time from, from a gastrectomy really depends on where the tumor is. So if the cancer is at the end of the stomach before it goes into the small intestines, uh, it's, it's generally possible to remove only half of the stomach. Uh, on the other hand, if the, if, the, if the cancer is right at the beginning of the stomach, right when the esophagus or food pipe empties into it, then most of the time patients actually have to have, have, to have the entire stomach removed and the surgeon creates a new stomach using loops of small bowel. So as one can imagine, the, the surgery to have half the stomach removed is, is significantly easier than surgery to have the entire stomach removed. But nevertheless, I mean, most patients are well recovered, I would say, within, you know, about three months from surgery. 
Uh, at that point, uh, they are eating normally. They're probably taking smaller, more frequent meals throughout the day, but able to eat all of the foods that they enjoy. At that point, energy um, weight has stabilized, and and you know typically around the three month mark, um, you know patients are feeling well enough that they're able to go back to work. You know, especially if it's kind of a desk job. Uh, if the job is more physically active than that, then you know um, uh, the workplace may have to make some allowances and potentially you know give them uh, give them you know something that's a little bit less physically strenuous uh, until until the, they're they're back up and running again. Um, but I would say certainly that you know the 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 good news is is that you know most patients recover uh, fully from from a gastrectomy. Um, probably the only long-term change is rather than having you know three large meals throughout the day, they're eating smaller, more frequent meals. They're kind of grazing a little bit more. But in every other respect, in terms of quality of life, in terms of doing the things that are important and meaningful to them, uh, you know, life continues. Excellent. Thank you. That's excellent. And uh, Dr. Mohammed, Dr. Dr. Bassam Sanpal, um, would you like to add to that? Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, it's it's really also different from one patient to another for sure. I mean, with it's all based on the comorbidities and if you have any other uh, medical problems. Uh, of course, I mean, in general, on average, uh, sometimes it's about five to seven days staying in the hospital, and then there is the period of recovery afterwards. And uh, it's all again going into the 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 uh, communication. Uh, part that if you're having any problems uh, after the operation to really communicate with the with the team members and the, the nutritionist uh, uh, also role is very important here uh, because also as Dr. Kuhn mentioned I mean, you're, you're going to really um, get used to the, the this the new norm with with how you eat and and the the, the differences that you're going to have uh, with with the operation afterwards um, but yeah that's that's really pretty much it. Excellent. And we do in the United States have workplace accommodations through the American Disabilities Act and Family Medical Leave Act. And um, actually, we'll include information about that um, in the when you get after the program ends. You'll get an evaluation form, and the evaluation form will include um, all the resources we mentioned during the program and other resources that we think might be helpful to you. So that um, and we will definitely include information about this as well. Um, for people who want to understand about the workplace protection they have. And, and also the point was made that it de really depends on the type of work you do. If you're doing a, a desk work or sitting at a desk versus if you're doing really heavy labor or some type of things that require much more you're physically active, um, that the, the workplace does have to accommodate those kinds, kinds of needs. So just so that is understood by everyone. You know, Carolyn, I would actually be, you know, very uh, interested in hearing to see, you know, whether Diana has, has more specific suggestions in terms of, of kind of diet or the frequency of meals or, you know, supplements for patients who've, who've you know, who are post-gastrectomy. I, I know that's a little bit um, off-topic uh, given the fact that we're talking about metastatic disease, but I think it could still be helpful to everyone on the call. Absolutely. And Ms. Baird? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, Small frequent meals is something that we go to oftentimes, especially after surgery or if someone's appetite's poor. Um, the reason why is a lot of times food can feel overwhelming in large portions. Um, other suggestions are foods that don't have as much odor. A lot of times just the odor, the smell of food cooking in a microwave or in an oven when you walk into the room can just 
really take your appetite away. So we discuss foods that have less odor, oftentimes cold foods are encouraged more often because they don't have as much odor. So um, oftentimes we'll talk about egg salad, boiled eggs, tuna salad, um, cheese, yogurt, cottage cheese. Um, the foods that you really want to look at when you're making decisions about which foods to, to bring in are the ones that are going to give you the most nourishment in the smallest quantity. And the nourishment that I'm discussing are things like calories, protein, um, vitamins, minerals, all the things that our body needs to function and work optimally. And so um, there are supplements, oral supplements that are available, but we always work with food first. Um, and the reason for that is um, we know that food is, is in its natural form going to give us so much variety um, that, that it's really going to touch a lot of the bases that our body needs for getting in those different nutrients and um, just a big spectrum. Another thing, um, avoiding foods that can make you feel full very quickly, things that are high in insoluble fiber, so it's the crunchy fiber. Like if you have celery and you crunch it, um, all that fiber that, that you see in there and then you cook it for, for several hours and it still looks like celery, um, that fiber can be very bulking and very filling for patients. So whenever you're not really that hungry, um, we want to make sure that we get as much food as we can into you and help with focusing on foods that are going to be um, give less side effects of fullness early. So the fiber is actually going to make you feel very full very quickly, not give you a lot of calories or protein, but then you're not going to eat very much. So these are things you can talk about definitely with your team about which foods are appropriate, but um, definitely there's um, reason for, for bringing certain foods in and then removing foods for a period of time until you get over that hump. Um, same with hydration. Um, it's another topic that we focus on with patients who are struggling, that drinking between meals so you don't get full on fluid um, is a technique. So 30 minutes before a meal, 30 minutes after a meal, working to get the majority of your fluid in and then in between meal times um, rather than during the meal so you can really focus on getting in those nutrients during the meal. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, so one, this is the last question, um, and this is for Dr. Um, Bassam Sonabal to start. Um, how do the side effects compare for targeted treat therapies versus standard chemotherapy for gastric cancer? So the t targeted therapy, for example, um, the, the one that we have right now most commonly is the Herceptin, as Dr. Koo mentioned, uh, or the Trastuzumab. And the side effects are really minimal from this. We only want to watch just for the, uh, your doctor will order a baseline echocardiogram so to check on the heart function because in a subset of patients, very rarely it can cause a, a drop in the heart function. So uh, this will be monitored during the therapy. There are more rare side effects that we very rarely see them, like um, inflammation in the lung and others. But for the most part, this target therapy is really uh, very well tolerated. The other um, <clears throat> medication is the uh, blood vessel uh, medications, the ramucirumab, 
that can cause uh, in some patients uh, some leakage of protein in the in the urine, what we call proteinuria. So we, uh, your doctor will be checking uh, urine testing on uh, from time to time. Um, it can cause also uh, your doctor will be asking you about your blood pressure. So blood pressure monitoring is very important because it can cause um, high blood pressure, uh, some wound healing problems as well. Um, but also for the most part, it's it's not really one of the medications that's associated with the typical side effects of uh, or nausea and vomiting and stuff like that. Now, on the other hand, you know, you have uh, the chemotherapy, the standard chemotherapy can cause the side effects of uh, nausea and vomiting. Hair loss is really different from one therapy to another, and it's really variable. Um, but as I said and mentioned before, really we've uh, we we've gotten better not just with chemotherapy and all of these advance uh, advancement and and therapies but also in in the supportive care medications and anti-nausea medications and others now the third part that uh, the in the, that uh, um, that I want to cover which is really important for patients who are getting immunotherapy um, th these medications, as you heard from Dr. Ku, the way they, they work is really they're um, activating the immune system, so waking up the immune system to go and find the, the fight the cancer. And because they're uh, waking up the immune system, the immune system might go and fight um, normal uh, body organs. For example, you might have an inflammation of the uh, thyroid gland, which is very uh, common that we, we see that. So your doctor will be just checking the thyroid function, and if it is low, then replace it. But then what I tell patients, it can really cause inflammation in any part of the body. Um, and uh, like, for example, if you're having diarrhea, that might be related to what we call colitis, so inflammation of the colon. Uh, if you're having some fatigue, that might be the adrenal glands being uh, having an inflammation in there. So it's it's very, very important, very, very important that I tell patients, whatever you find that is different from before, just let us know, and then we will let you know. Don't Don't think that this is oh, this is nothing, just let us know, and then we can tell you if it is nothing or not because uh, it's it's very important for any of these side effects to really uh, jump on them and really address them very early when, when they happen. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Koo, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that was very comprehensive. I mean, I think the, you know, so targeted therapies, I mean, essentially is kind of a grab bag. It's anything that's not chemotherapy. So, you know, an immune treatment um, versus a treatment that blocks blood vessels, you know, versus a, a treatment that blocks HER2, um, all have very distinct side effects. I, I think it's, it is broadly true that these side effects are less than those of chemotherapy, um, but, but they can, you know, they, they can, they, you know, they can still be um, substantial um, frequently, these drugs are combined with chemotherapy, um, so so we still have to be mindful of the side effects of of chemotherapy. Uh, but I would also absolutely agree that you know, uh, in general, uh, inflammation side effects from immunotherapy are uncommon. Uh, but recognizing them right away, uh, and if necessary, starting steroids to kind of you know tamp down the immune system and and cool off the inflammation is is absolutely critical. I think it can be absolutely dangerous if you know 
know, the side effect is not recognized or if we don't start steroids right away and, and then a mild side effect that we can treat successfully as an outpatient, you know, becomes a serious side effect that requires being in the hospital. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's always a situation where, where, you know, letting, letting your medical team know right away if you have a question or if there's something that's different than before uh, is, is far, far preferable to, to having to kind of react to it, you know, a couple of days or a week later. Wow, excellent, both of you. This is I ha, all of you an ex- extraordinary call. I want to thank um, Dr. Ku, Dr. Vassam Sanpal, and I want to thank uh, Ms. Bearden. This is an extraordinary call, I, and I want to thank all of the participants as well, asking those great questions as well. Um, and um, this is an hour program, um, and we've been able to take some of your questions, not all of them. So I do want to get back to that. I know some of you still have questions. So I do um, suggest that you actually, um, you know, take your questions, and uh, if you have some left, even if you asked a question during the call and you got information, that you take that information back to your treating healthcare team, because um, as has been said, I think by Dr. Ku earlier, they, you know, you um, and Dr. Sunball, or Dr. Basam Sunball as well, but you know, that your own treating team know you better. So we're giving you some general information here. So take it back to your treating healthcare team and see how it applies to you specifically with everything else they know about you. Um, but I think that um, so. But if you still have medical questions, your healthcare team, of course, is always the go-to people to go to because they, as in some respects, you can think this program is a bit of a practice run for asking your questions of your doctor. And we do want you to call them between appointments. I know some of you live in rural areas far away from your doctors, and you have an appointment a month later, but you're having some treatment side effect or something's bothering you. Call them. That's I think what you hear about and clear on this program as well. Um, but in addition to that, many of you would like to have other places to call for information. So we often recommend the National Cancer Institute. They have a 100 number, and you'll be getting that also when you get the evaluation, 1-800-422-6237. And they have a website which has a live chat feature. So for people in the U.S. and internationally, it's particularly useful. Um, it's www.cancer.gov, and it says One Help Now, and there's a little live chat box that comes up, and you can post your question. And within a minute or two, they really um, there's someone there to answer your question, um, and so that's that's a good thing to know about. They are they usually operate on um, they're on West Coast time, so it's uh, business hours. So just to be aware of that, um, so that would be um, so that just to be aware of that time. That they're they're available, but they on a Monday through Friday they're available. So that's a good good option for you to have. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the call today, we would not want you to feel that you're alone. And for those of you who would like to get some support from Cancer Care, you can contact us, and we will be giving you those numbers again um, in the evaluations. And I mentioned them earlier in the program as well: one eight hundred eight one three four six seven three, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and um, we do have a program coming up on October 28th on preventing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. That might be of interest to some of you. Same time, um, just a different date. It's a Monday, October 28th. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And again, that concept of feeling alone, although I know you all may feel alone sometimes, please recognize that there are a lot of resources out there. You can start with Cancer Care, your healthcare team, but there are a lot of people that can really help you with concerns that you may have. Never think that your question or concern can't be addressed, and there isn't someone out there with expertise to help you to to deal with it. Thank you, and have a fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.